So a little pop quiz here. Uh, can you name for me the five wealthiest pers- people on this earth today? Or how about the last five Heisman Trophy winners? Or, you know, maybe ten gold medal winners from the last Olympics. Can you name the person who won the Miss American pageant for the last five years? Uh, how about, uh, you know, ten people who won either the, the Nobel or the Pulitzer? You list them out. How about Academy Awards? Maybe that's your thing. You name six winners the last, last six years of Academy Award winner of the best actor or actresses. Or maybe baseball. How about the last decade of the World, Sin- World Series winners? I think some of you might actually be able to do that. Um, or maybe the, the MVPs for the last five years. Uh, you might be able to name a few, but chances are we're probably going to fail that. Is that something? I mean, these are the big things. You know, these are the major awards. Um, but let me ask you this question. Who have been two teachers who have made a difference in your life? Can you name two teachers? <laughs> I had one of them, uh, one of my teachers, get on Facebook. My third grade teacher got on Facebook, um, and we became friends. It's interesting what, a, what a, your third grade teacher might put on there. Um, I put some post up there, and, and she said, well, I'm really impressed with all the knowledge you have. And I said, like, well, I guess I've learned something since third grade. You know, <laughs> that was a long time ago. Um, can you name three friends that have been with you in difficult times? How about a mentor who's believed in you and thought the best of you? Um, five people you enjoy being around because they're fun and you admire them. You have any heroes, dead or alive, who have inspired you in some way, encouraged you? I, I think that maybe we'll do better with this last half of the test. Um, what you do with others matters. How you spend time with them, in fact, might matter more than the achievements and recognitions that we often spend our life seeking. What you do with others. And with that thought, I want to take you to the end of Acts. Uh, the end of Acts. Uh, we're going to look at uh, the overview of chapter 27 and 28. Um, that's it. We've been at this for a while now, the book of Acts. Um, poor Chad and Amanda, they were here with us. They are listening to it nonstop, trying to catch up. They're sending me texts and stuff from like a year ago, asking me questions of things I pre- pre- preached about. Uh, and I thought, you know, here they are. They're, they're trying to soak it all in. But you guys have been with me, hopefully, uh, throughout uh, this time. And we're at the end. The, the whole idea of the book of Acts is to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in making discipleship communities. How is it that we have a church throughout the world? How did that happen when it started with just a few at the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And and the book of Acts provides this very helpful bridge, but I'm going to just tell you it could end better. All right, it's it's a letter that, look, Luke, the book of Luke is the first part, if you don't know that. Acts is the second volume. Uh, and so it, it's helpful to, to have those together. Uh, but the way he ends the book of Acts is just a little bit of a, a cliffhanger. 
Um, it's kind of like the, the old days of me watching uh, the Dukes of Hazard. It always ended up the Dukes of Hazard. The General Lee was up in the air and is about to crash, and it has this, what's going to happen to the bow and Luke? You know, and you had to wait till next time. It's a little bit of this, okay, we'll, we'll just put a period here and, and close the book. Uh, the re- the part of, I think part of the reason of that is that it's not really about Paul or Peter or the other guys. It's really about the work of the Holy Spirit as he is multiplying the church. And therefore, it hasn't ended. We are as much writing in that history as we submit to the Holy Spirit as Paul was doing in his day. And the question is, is how much is the Holy Spirit working in us and making a worldwide movement of praise to God through Jesus Christ? And so, I want to use the last two chapters to just bring out some summary uh, instructions, characteristics, that really come from the entire book, but you see it, again, exemplified in, in the last two chapters, as you've seen it throughout all these chapters. Uh, and so chapter 27, he is, uh, it, it's fascinating uh, story of about to die on a, a shipwreck. Uh, and it's really to the point of, there's a lot of details here, Luke. Why, why are there so many details? Well, I think part of it is because Luke was there. I mean, what would you say if you're about to die, if you're about to die on a shipwreck? It's, it's really strong in his mind. Uh, and so he writes some of these stories. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with the reading of chapter 28. Uh, and we'll get some conclusions from both of these chapters. And so let's stand as we read Acts chapter 28. And after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. Native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks, a bundle of sticks, and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt, this man is a murderer. Though he had escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. And they were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief men of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitally for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hand on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured, and they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexander with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Petili. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Apius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when he came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guard him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the custom of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar. 
though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they say to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here as a reporter have spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to the sect, we have known that everywhere is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he had said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right, saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For the people's heart has grown dull, and with their hearts they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. You may be seated. And that's the end of Acts. <laughs> it's like, wow, okay. Uh, tradition tells us that Paul was released in Rome. Uh, in fact, his goal was to go to Spain. There's some question whether he did or didn't go to Spain uh, with Rome, Romans' help. But we do know that eventually he was arrested again and was uh, eventually beheaded uh, by order of the Emperor Nero. Uh, so despite all the things that God had rescued from, uh, ultimately uh, he did uh, die. And uh, some people will say, well, God will heal you from every sickness except the last one. Uh, and so... That's very much the case here with Paul. God had rescued him from every travail, uh, everything that was going against, but ultimately, you know we're going to die, right? Uh, And so there's some point where God says, no, it's time to die. Uh, And we don't know exactly how that's going to happen. And so here is Paul. And so as we read this, there are some things I just want to bring out. First, uh, as we read this account, and and looking to the the shipwreck account as well as you see in chapter 27, one of the themes you see throughout from the beginning of the book of Acts to to today is or to this moment, uh, chapter 27, 28, is this continual work of being surrendered to the Holy Spirit. In all that happens, his disciples are surrendered to the Spirit. In fact, it is in the book of Acts, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, that we have the accounting of the Spirit of God coming in among the believers. Listen, if you want to be used by the Lord in anything, uh, there must be a dependent relationship on the Holy Spirit. Uh, You see this in in how he phrases this in chapter 27. You see this in, in the midst when everyone is losing hope, in verse 22, 23, Paul stands up and says, let me give you a little encouragement. He says, yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Notice how he described himself. He says, this angel came to me. He was the angel of God, the God to whom I belong. And to whom I worship. One of the, the understandings of being this phrase being filled with the Spirit, you see this in, in the Bible, what it simply means is to be surrendered to God. To be content with 
who God is. When we say that we're filled with something, we have been so satisfied, we need nothing else. I, I often talk about this when it comes, especially this time of season, uh, when we get a lot of food coming our way, one good, sure way to not want dessert is to be filled with the main course, all right? To say, you know what, I really love banana pudding, I, I, <laughs> that's great, but I'm filled. I'm satisfied with what I've already had. So to be filled with the Spirit of God is to be content with who God is and to be surrendered to His authority. And so when he says he belongs to God, it is a way of saying, I'm belonging to the Holy Spirit. I belong to Him. It's interesting how he describes himself. He doesn't say the angel of God to whom I believe. That's not how he describes. Or the, the, the set of instructions to which I adhere to. Some people believe that the Christian faith is just saying that you believe certain things. If that is your understanding of the Christian faith, is that you just merely believe certain things, then you have totally missed out on what the Bible is teaching. The Bible is teaching that above all things, it is a relationship. Your dignity, your worth, your your idea of yourself is not defined by your gender, nor is it defined by your skin color, nor is it defined by to whom you're attracted to sexually, but the identity of who you are is defined by to whom you belong. That you belong to God. There must be a surrender of the Holy Spirit. There is a relationship, a love that grows in your heart that overwhelms all the other loves you have. And so that's how he describes himself. This is the one to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And then he says, don't be afraid. Uh, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. God, another God's given me a word of what's going to happen. And it's going to be as God has said, I'm not going to be afraid. And he's sharing that with others. So one of the things you see throughout is the surrender of the Spirit. If we're going to be a church... As God has intended us to be, there must be individually a surrender to who the Spirit of God is. He is God. He's not just one that gives you crazy ideas, bizarre thoughts, weird impulses. He is God, and when He speaks into our life, it is the same as God speaking into us through His Scripture to say that there's going to be agreement with Scripture and to say, you know, that's not just a crazy thought. When I recognize that's God speaking me and instructing me, I must obey. We carry on. We're going to see a a few other characteristics, but that is something you see all from Acts chapter 1 through chapter 28. Surrender to the Holy Spirit. Well, Notice something else as we read this. There is a trust in the sovereignty of God. From Acts chapter 1 to Acts through 28, there's a trust in the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty means God is in control. There is an understanding that in all these details of life, God has a purpose. He has not lost control. He is working through these purposes. Uh, notice this as, as we read chapter 27, verse 35. It says, therefore, he's again giving them instruction. Paul is telling the sailors, therefore, I urge you to take some food. It will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he said this, he took bread and gave thanks to God 
and the presence of all, and he broke it and began to eat. I just want you to take note of that. Uh, most of us have never sat through a sea storm, but from all accounts of things I've read, those who've witnessed it said it is the most scariest moment of their life. And here you have Paul that's in this sea where there's this perfect storm brewing, and he's given thanks. So, wait a second, guys. Let's eat some food, and let's just thank God together. <laughs> just consider that moment. How does that happen? Well, that happens... When Paul says, you know, God said, me some, said something to me. All the sailors are telling me something different. Everyone's losing hope. The storms are going. The sea is coming in. And the ship is creaking and it's going to break. But I believe that God is in control and what he said is going to happen. So let me thank him. There are two ways, primarily, that we can express the fact that we believe that God is in control. One is prayer. The other is thanksgiving. One is prayer, the other is thanksgiving. These are the two main instructions. In fact, it's, it's interesting. He's written, Paul wrote a lot of letters when he was in prison. Uh, he wrote uh, Timothy's, he wrote uh, Philippians, he wrote Colossians. It's interesting, some of the things that he said in those passages to, to express this trust in the sovereignty of God. Uh, first of all, let's look at Philippians uh, chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 11 through 13. We looked at this briefly last week. He said, in the prison... Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. How did he do that? He learned in God's sovereignty that he is in control. I'm learning to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of being a face and planning and hungering, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All right, So this isn't just a, a plea for God, give me the strength so I can make the, the goal in sports. That's often how we think about it sometimes. But what he's talking about is when things are hard, or things are good, I realize that God is in control. He's working in these things, and he's got a purpose for me to run in the middle of good times, bad times, and he can do all things with me, through me, through Christ, and I'm cooperating with that. It is this belief that in everything, God is at work. Notice also in Colossians chapter 4. This is also one that he wrote uh, during this time, this season. Chapter 4, verse 2. Just one, one, two pages over. He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So he says, continue in prayer, steadfastly, watchful in it with thanksgiving. He's in prison. And he says, pray with thanksgiving. How do you trust in God's sovereignty? You can tell me that you believe that God is in control all you want, but if you are not praying and you're not giving thanksgiving, then the words are empty. These are the actions that demonstrate that we do believe that God is in control. Why are we praying? Because God is in control. We're asking to, for God to work. He is the one we appeal to. We ask for strength to deal with this, to, to show us what he wants us to know in the middle of challenging hard times like being in a shipwreck or being in prison with the appeal before Nero. Uh, and Paul says, look, let's do this. We pray, we ask, we talk to God. Then the second thing is, I believe God's going to do something great. 
uh, we have a, a friend, a pastor friend. He's back to come here uh, a few times to, to join in with some services. Many, many of you know Michael Wilkes. Uh, he just uh, he served with us when we've gone to Dearborn. He, his wife, young wife, um, have, they have five children. We just found out they have cancer. Uh, of the fourth um, level in the colon and liver, and they're still trying to find out more information. Some of you are there. You know what that's like. And they just had this amazing description of God's going to do something in this. Maybe it's healing. I don't know. But above all things, whether it's healing or not, we believe that God is going to do something. Next Sunday, we're going to have a speaker, a friend of, uh, of mine, um, come in and share a testimony. We're going to have communion. His name is Dr. Mike Watson. He's a medical doctor, family doctor. But he also, like a few of you, has cancer inoperable. And he's going to share a little bit of his testimony of how God is working in that. And there's a few of you, if I talk with you, could share similar things of saying, you know, if I had a choice, I, someone shared with me, and I never quite heard it quite like this, someone said, you know, I, if I had a choice, I would still choose cancer <laughs> because of what God is doing in this. I hadn't quite heard it said like that. But there is a belief, a holding, a truth that holds you. God is going to work. And so you see this all throughout the disciples. It doesn't really matter what opposition comes. I mean, you hit, the, the, the sailors are telling them, we're going to die. I mean, he goes to this island of Malta, and it seems like everyone is saying, this man must be unjust. I mean, he barely escaped this, and then a, verpent, a, a, a serpent uh, strikes him. He must be doomed to die. He's an evil man. It doesn't really matter what the people are saying, what the circumstances are saying. Paul believes in a God that knows his heart, that has saved him, and that is working through this. And it carries him on. So the next thing you know, you know, not only does he survive, he's healing others. And people think, well, wait, I guess we were wrong. Maybe he's God. <laughs> and of course, they were wrong there too. Uh, here's the thing. It doesn't really matter what society says about people who follow Jesus Christ as far as what they deem as righteous and unrighteous. And they'll say things, well, you know what? Christians are on the wrong side of, of history. How do you know that? How do you know that? See, there's a God who has written history, working through history, and is at the end of history, and he says that when it's all said and done, it's about him. So we realize that we trust in the sovereignty of God, we surrender the Spirit, but there's something else we see about Paul throughout in all the disciples, and that is they seek disciples. They seek disciples. It doesn't really matter what comes, they are constantly seeking disciples. You see this in in multiple examples, but notice how this chapter, this book ends up, chapter 28. Uh, Even as they're making this this travel to Rome, verse 14, uh, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. 
And so we came to Rome. So even in this, this transit of trying to get Rome, they're constantly looking for disciples. And we're going to talk about what that means. Some of them are existing disciples, those who are already testifying to Jesus Christ. And, and I think about the we who stayed there. The we who stayed there include this man named Julius. Who's Julius? Well, chapter 27. You see that in verse 1? Paul was delivered to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. Julius had been with them through this. God used Julius to keep him from being killed by the other guards. And now, as they are going through this, and they see uh, this transit, Julius has even seen believers coming saying, hey, we're going to take care of you. There's something to that. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. In every circumstance you're in, seek the disciples. Not just the Christians who are already professing they follow Jesus Christ, but those who are yet to be disciples. Yet to be. Di- you remember when, when Jesus was talking to Peter, that he had already resurrected, and, and he was having this moment with Peter, said, Peter, do you love me? He said, well, yes, Lord. Well, then feed my sheep. Peter, do you really love me? Yes, well, feed my sheep. So when Jesus was telling Peter, feed my sheep, who was he talking about? Was he talking about the, the, the ten others? <laughs> Just feed the ten others. You know, you see, what happened is God worked through Peter, and the disciples, the sheep, were found, and his job was to nurture. So when we talk about discipling, we're talking about feeding sheep, we're talking about teaching the Word of God, we're talking about those Maybe like yourself, you are coming here because you are professing Jesus as your Savior and Lord. You want to learn, you want to grow, you want to know Him more. But there are a world of people outside who are yet to be disciples. And we are to seek them too. How do you treat them as disciples to be? As disciples to be. You pray for them as disciples to be. You love them as disciples to be. You teach them about who God is as disciples to be. And so you see this with Paul as he finds those existing disciples. In verse 14, we found these brothers and they received the encouragement of them. You see that uh, as we keep on reading that in verse 15. Paul thanked God and took courage. Listen, I pray that when you guys get here, you walk away with courage. That doesn't happen just by me talking. It happens from one another. One of the tangible goals of church corporate worship is to walk away with courage. Let's be encouraged. That a little bit more real to you is the God who is there. And maybe more real to you than when he came in. The God who is there. As displayed through your brothers and sisters sitting with one another. How about this? If you're a disciple, how about if you make that your goal? When you come, God, can you use me to give courage to someone else? How do you know you had a good Sunday, a good worship service? It's not because you felt good. Okay? That's a fickle thing. It could be distracting whether or not my son was distracting you. And please don't let my son dictate your worship. (laughs) Or my daughters. Be fair. Wherever they're at. Uh, How's that determined? Well, one of the ways you know you had a successful sermon or Sunday or worship is you walk away 
encouraging someone else. You can walk away and say, you know, I had a little moment with somebody. I, I prayed with somebody. I, I heard a little bit of the pain of someone. I'm giving my life to someone else in just a small way. And they're walking away, and their load's a little bit lighter in following Jesus Christ. So here they are, and Paul's doing this. He's seeking these seven out. But notice what happens as he's in Rome. Not just those who are existing, but you see this at the very end, don't you? Here's verse 30. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, welcoming all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and wealth out hindrance. I think that perhaps maybe the reason the book of Acts ends up there to summarize how Paul ended his days is that this should also be the summary of our life. Can we say that you live there and you fill in the blank with however years God may give you at your own expense, welcoming all who come to you, proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching them about Lord Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. That's the goal, all right? So, younger people, hashtag goals right there, all right? Life goals. This is it. This is what we are to be about. Chapter 28, verse 30 and 31. You notice... As he gets into Rome, he seeks out the Jews. Verse 17, he calls together local leaders of the Jews and says, Here, come, I've got something to tell you. How are you using all the opportunities of your life to seek the disciples? That's the question we want to ask. But we keep on reading. There's, there's one more characteristic that we see throughout. And that is they serve with generosity. The disciples serve with generosity from Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 28. Those that are existent in the church are constantly giving out of how God has supplied their needs to meet the needs of others. The whole third missionary journey of Paul was about collecting an offering for the saints in Jerusalem because of the famine that was going on. Uh, from the very beginning, when the church started, you got the story of, of uh, Ananias and Sapphira, but more significantly Barnabas, and how they sold things so that they can meet the needs of others. And here at the very end, how is Paul surviving? He's surviving with the help of the church. These who are ministering to him. I think one of the things that must have impacted Julius. Here's Julius. He's, he's gone with Paul. He's gone through the, uh, the storm. He saw how Paul dealt with the storm. He saw the encouragement, the strength that came. He saw that God's promises were true. He saw the, verpent, uh, the serpent thing going on. And then he saw how God used him to heal others. And then he comes and he meets the church. And for seven days, they're just taking care of Julius. The generosity of the saints. God used from the beginning, the book of Acts to the end, generosity of the saints. Now I'm not talking about tithing. Tithing, that's the Old Testament idea of giving 10% of how God has blessed you. That's what the law said. Jesus goes on and says, out of God's grace, this is the definition of generosity. We look for opportunities to be a physical blessing to someone else. So 
we got requests this past week for the blood drive at the Hodge Road Elementary School. You have to know I don't like giving blood. <laughs> Some of you already know that. I, I did that here. I, I did that here once. We had a blood drive, and I was like, okay, I did it. So I've done it. <laughs> I can't give blood. I've been out of country. Sorry. <laughs> no, but here's the request. Hodge Road is asking, hey, can anyone help us with this blood drive? Why did they send a request to this church? Because this church has a track record of helping that school. So I signed up to receive. <laughs> I'm going to be at the welcome desk. Hey, guys, come on, give your blood. Um, why do we do that? It's just one of the ways that we can give our time at a school where we can make a difference. Why do we have a food pantry? Why do you have this information in, in your bulletin about this? Well, I guess we're just assuming that God's people might be generous. But we've got good grounds to believe that. To make a difference in Nightdale. If we want to make a difference, Paris is going to happen through people giving. Generosity. If we're going to make a difference in Syria, if we're going to have to see a difference in Nightdale, it's going to happen because God's people will be generous. And you see this from the book of Acts all throughout the end. So, will us, will we be generous? If we have this desire for discipleship communities to start up in your neighborhood, the neighborhoods around us to have groups come together to learn about the teachings of Jesus is going to happen through generosity. And it's okay. Because we're going to be surrendered to the Spirit and we're going to get our identity not by our bank account, but to whom we belong. And we're going to be surrendered to Him. And we're, we're going to have situations pop up and we're thinking, oh my goodness, if that happens and I am generous, then this means I'm going to be reduced by this amount. But we're going to trust in the sovereignty of God and that He is in charge and He is working through these things still. Because our main goal is to seek disciples. I had a, a, a message come in from uh, one of the contacts that, that we have in Nepal couple I was able to meet with, and she writes this. I don't know if you know, there's a major famine, of course, what's going on in Nepal. Uh, this is where they're at. Uh, there's a fuel crisis that's happening. Uh, their job is to run a restaurant. That's what keeps them in country, is to run a restaurant. And they said, the day of extremes, the fuel crisis hits home hard. So we finished our last cylinder of cooking gas at the Lazy, Lazy Gringo. Like many other, that's the name of the <laughs> restaurant. Like many other businesses in town, we have to close our doors and have no idea when we can reopen. Pray for our staff, who like so many are suffering, now even more so without a job. From that sad, discouraging meeting, I went to see our newest teammates who bring such a lift and joy to my life. They reported on their morning of discipleship with a new believer in a slum and then told me about their Nepali partner who boldly began sharing with a man she met along the way. She methodically walked through the gospel and asked if he wanted this free gift, and he said, yes, a new brother. Along with all of heaven, we are rejoicing. These diligent, dedicated young women are one step closer to witnessing the establishment of a church in this broken community. Please continue to pray for our family and our team in the midst of the uncertainty of everything we once thought sure, that we stay focused on what is unseen, the eternal glory that outweighs all those light and momentary troubles. This is what it's all about. Listen, I just want to bring that to you to say that if their life was about the restaurant— then they would be depressed because they're having shut the doors and employees are having to go home. 
If your life is about your business, you will have constant sources of frustration. But if you give your business and say, I want it to be serving for the generosity of the saints to see God's mission accomplished, it's amazing how perspective will change and can change if you realize that the business exists for God's glory. So even when they're having to close the doors, they are not discouraged because disciples are being made. You see, how they're living life in Nepal is to be no different than how we're to live life here. Your job is just a platform. And let me just dare say, your physical health is just a platform. What does that mean? From a place of standing from whence you can share the gospel. And it may be for some of you, your lack of health will be a platform to share the gospel. Everything is a platform to share the gospel. But if that's going to happen in your life, here's one key thing. You've got to refuse to let the situation determine your attitude. You hear me? You've got to refuse this idea that the situation determines your attitude. We are not victims. And it doesn't really matter if ISIS comes in and beheads some people. We are not victims. It doesn't matter if the boss is treating you unfairly. If the world is treating you unfairly, we are not victims. Please reject that mentality as coming from the pit of hell. There is no situation that should determine your obedience and heart to God. You've got to see the one who is above the circumstance. The God who is working through the circumstance, trust His love, surrender to that Spirit. Seek the disciples and serve with generosity because He frees you to do so. Let me just share with you that we have a Jesus who surrendered to the Holy Spirit, who trusted in the sovereignty of God that even when God the Father said, die on this cross, He trusted the Father. And in so doing, he sought disciples. He's seeking many sons to be returned to glory. And he did so with extreme generosity of giving his lifeblood for you. Will we follow the God of Acts who is wanting to see an act of the Holy Spirit in this church? Let's pray.